Hey guys, Reed Goosens here. Now before we dive into today's show, I quickly want to tell you about some exciting things happening in 2018. Now in a few months time, I will be launching my brand spanking new book appropriately titled Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And it is all the best bits from this show transformed into a book. Now, as you are all loyal listeners on this show, we are doing a pre-launch book giveaway. So what you have to do in order to participate in this pre-launch book giveaway is just shoot me an email. It's pretty simple. At info, that's I-N-F-O at readgoosens.com. And in the subject line, you can put the words Kraken book. And in return, I will shoot you back a link where you can go and pre-order your copy of my new book. Now remember, in that link, there will be an area where you can put the code Kraken, C-R-A-C-K-I-N, and that will enable you to get a discount. I want to thank you all for tuning in. The reason why I do this show is because of my loyal listeners, and this is a way of me giving back to you guys by helping you. You can pre-order the book and get it for free before we launch in a couple of months' time. All right, now back into the show. One thing I've realized when I look back over the last 13, 14 years, there's two things in real estate that are constant. There's always money in real estate, but it's about being on the right side of the trade. Welcome to Investing in the US, an Aussie's guide to US real estate. A podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lee Carney. Lee is one of the nation's most active and successful single-family real estate investors, having flipped over 7,000 houses in the last decade 
totaling over $500 million in property under his property group called Spin Real Estate Company. Lee is known as a leading expert in understanding and leveraging real estate markets. He has been on the front lines of flipping homes and his passion and expertise come into play as he inspires and educates real estate investors of all levels through his Flip Your Income training program. So I'm really excited and pumped to have him on the show to share his knowledge with us and his just experience. But enough out of me, let's get him out here. G'day, Lee. Welcome to the show. How are you all today, mate? Doing good, Reid. Thanks for having me. Mate, my pleasure. So just in the green room, we're talking a little bit about you're based in Florida, mate, and uh, huge cyclones coming through. Do you want to give the uh, the listeners a bit of an update on what's happened on your end in the last 24 hours? Well, actually, we started preparing on Monday for Hurricane Michael. We started doing a spreadsheet. It's not our first rodeo. We identify all assets that are going to be in the way of the storm and identify which ones are highest risk. And, that, and actually, that's a moving target. What's funny is these hurricanes move. So we have a, a total list, but depending on where the cone shifts and where the eye shifts, uh, we identified we had about six to eight assets that were going to be pretty much wiped out. Uh, it did hit landfall yesterday at 155 mile an hour, sustained winds, gusts over 170 miles an hour. I mean, sometimes the news exaggerate this stuff. This is, I think, the largest storm that's ever hit the panhandle. I mean, this is really complete wipeout. I mean, it's almost wow. at five. Holy crap. <laughs> that's sustained winds of 155. Just Google some of the videos. I mean, it's just stuff flying everywhere. I mean, it's done. Right. Yeah, it's pretty so bad. We actually how, had one property, How's the damage? Well, we had one property four miles north of the eye. <laughs> like, it was actually right in the center of the eye uh, where it hit. So we think that we don't have a property there. We're suspecting when we go there, there'll be just blocks where the mobile home sat, and we'll have to go find the mobile home. So, yeah, it's wow. going to be pretty bad. There's actually, Any, the, the whole area is cordoned off right now. We, our drivers... We actually have crews with tarps and materials sitting at all of the roads trying to get into our properties and they're not letting anyone in. It's bad. Wow. 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 No, anyone hurt? You don't know yet? We don't have good reports from inside that, that, that zone. It's basically like the apocalypse. Uh, one of my contractors is inside that zone. He's basically stuck at his house. His window's blown out. His roof's blown off. Garage door blown out. I mean, it's bad. And he was about 10 minutes outside of the eye. So... I mean, this is on the ground. We see this stuff. It's, it's it really is like the apocalypse. It's like that. What's that? That TV show, um, Zombie Walking Dead or whatever. Yeah, it is. that's that's <laughs> what it's kind of like. It's it's pretty spooky. And this is yeah. going to have hundreds of thousands of people without power for days and weeks. In some cases, maybe even months. It, it's this was a big one. Uh, and that's what, crazy. And what's crazy, Reed? We're still fighting insurance claims from a year ago from Hurricane Irma. So. For an investor like me, where you're heavily vested in a market where you own assets, this is a big deal. Whether you have insurance or not, you got to have the, the capital to be able to ride out the storm until you get paid from the insurance company. No pun intended, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> well, mate, that's a, you know, please, uh, thoughts and prayers and all that, all that stuff to, to you guys. And uh, I you. know that hopefully you'll, you'll get through it. But um to kick off the show, that's probably a really untraditional way of kicking off the sure. show. Usually, usually I ask my, my guests to rewind the clock, and, and I detected an accent. So rewind the clock and uh, take us back to when you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Well, it wasn't actually a dollar. It was a pound. So it was a pound. <laughs> I actually made my first money. It wasn't a lemonade stand. I think my first pound was mowing grass. That's what I did. I was just cutting lawns, making money, charging, I think, five or, I think it was five or 10 pounds back then. That's and even before that, I was making 50p, 50 pence uh, allowance. And in fact, I remember it was even like less than that. So I would do chores around the house, help my dad, help my mom. 
So I always kind of had that entrepreneur spirit. And it's funny you asked that question. I didn't know in advance you're going to ask it, but it reminds me of one of my first questions to my father. I was probably five or six at the time. And I said to him, dad, what's business? I don't know where, I guess I just recognized he was an entrepreneur. And he said, well, son, we buy at one price and, we, we, and then we sell it for more money. And my eyes were big as saucers. So my next question, I'm like, dad, why don't they just buy it from the same people you buy it from? That's, that was, I, I guess I was, I was pretty impressed. And when I look back to even ask a question like that, and you know what his answer was? <laughs> they don't know where to find it. So it's, realized, it's, it's true, right? Yeah, true. I realized he would source suppliers in Germany and in France and in Spain and Italy, and he'd buy, buy container loads. He was in the air conditioning business of air conditioning units and fans and ductwork. He'd import them into Ireland and he'd piece them out one by one and mark them up, and that was his profit margin. So I thought that was cool. That was, I learned really early on what business was. I got the bug, and I'd always said, I'm going to have my own business. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. So if people didn't detect your accent or the fact that you mentioned Ireland, whereabouts in Ireland are you from and, and what, what brings you to the United States and what's that, what's that journey look like? Sure. Yeah. I'm actually about 30 minutes outside Dublin, a place called Wicklow. And just to give you guys some perspective, the movie Braveheart, anyone who's seen that, uh, all the, the forest scenes of Braveheart were filmed near my house where I grew up. And then all the mountain scenes were filmed in Scotland. So what they did was they combined two different countries and made it look like one place. But yeah, that's a, that's a fun fact about Braveheart. And the reason I know that, I was cycling my bike one day as a kid. I was probably 10, 12 at the time. And I noticed in this forest that there was a wooden fort. And so I'm curious as a kid. I jump over the fence, ditch my bike, try to climb up in the wooden fort. The security guard comes and goes, you need to get off. And I said, well, what's going on? He goes, it's a movie set. And then I realized later on that was, that was Braveheart. So That's awesome. Yeah. That's, re that's really cool. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to, as embarrassing as this might be, I'm 32 years old. And I'm Australian and, you know, I actually, and Mel Gibson being Australian, all that sort of bloody stuff. I never actually saw Braveheart until about four weeks ago. Oh, someone's, I was going to be embarrassed for you if you said you'd never seen it, but you've seen it now, <laughs> so I can't say that. Well, someone sat me down. I was in New York with a, at a, an Australian mate of mine. He's like, mate, we're sitting down watching this tonight. And I was, uh, it's pretty funny how just how far we've come in technology and all that sort of stuff. But um, so, so you, what, what brings you to the United States? What's sure. that journey look like for you? Sure. So in 96, I moved over here for an education. My sister was going to a small private college. I went to the same college, really like living in the States, decided then to move on and get my BA and business and specialize in marketing and in, um, what was it? No, it was actually just in marketing at the time. So then what I did is I moved on and started my master's program, realized, you know what, I've had a lot of school. At this point, I'm six, six years in school. I was burnt out actually moved back to Ireland to try to move my, to run my father's company. He had three partners at the time. And so I'm the young upstart with the college education. So as quickly as I went home, I basically got booted out the door. They just, they just, they weren't going to do it my way and I wasn't going to do it their way. And what's interesting is another fun fact, that company actually went bankrupt about two years after I moved back to the States. So, and I was pointing out some major problems because I could read the financials at this point and go, your balance sheet's upside down. I mean, there's no assets in this company. It's a bag of wind. I mean, this is just really, really bad. Same thing as real estate. You know, you can have cash flow today, but if your balance sheet's upside down, I mean, those chickens are going to come home to roost. And, you know, the, these are the kind of things that I did learn in school. So everyone says, well, you don't need to go to college. And they bash college. And some people say college, you have to go to college. I picked up certain things in college that definitely from a, from a financial standpoint, higher level finance in my master's and really understanding higher level marketing has really helped me in my business. So anyway, 2001, go back to Ireland, hate it, move back, 
to California, actually, at the time. I was dating a girl out there. Things didn't work out. Horrible breakup. Jumped on a plane, moved back to Tampa, Florida. So, and what was funny was in 2003, before I'd left Ireland, I'd bought a, a, a condo. It was a penthouse. Hated it. Got broke into within the first couple months. Put it back on the market. Made 30, 35,000 euro at the time which was more money than the job I had. So that's when the light bulb went off going, what am I doing here? This was by accident. It was an accidental flip. So I decided with purpose in California to, to seek out a mentor. And people always ask me about mentors. I'm, that's the way I learn. I don't read a lot of books. People always ask me, what's your favorite book? I don't read a lot of books. I sit down with really smart people. I'll have lunch, dinner. I'll just really just talk to them, try to understand how they think. I learn more from an hour conversation than I could from reading hundred books. That's just how I've learned. And the mentors in my life have shaped my business and everybody learns differently. So I don't bash people that read tons of books. I don't bash people that don't read books. Everybody learns different. And so I think that that's, you know, part of what's shaped me as an entrepreneur. So 2004 found a mentor. He actually was someone I went to church with, found out he was rehabbing houses. And I just trailed around and watched what he did. And he showed me where to buy, what price to buy. And I went out, it took me four months to find my first flip. So it was a probate deal had this little old agent that, that worked with me. I mean, I'm sure she was sick of showing me houses for four months, but she stuck with me, got this probate deal, scared to death. It was $130,000 approximately. It's actually right outside my office. So when I have students come through, they're like, well, what's that? I'm like, that's my first real real estate deal. So bought it for 130, probate deal. Made one of my first mistakes, by the way, Reed. I moved into the house and tried to rehab around myself. Terrible move. So it took about three months to do a two-week rehab. I, mean, I electrocuted myself. I almost had an antenna fall on my head. Uh, I mean, plumbing leaks. I, I feel really bad for the person that bought the house. It was and another funny story. The day before closing, he looks me dead in the eye, and he was a, a Mexican guy and from Mexico, a lot of Mexicans in Southern California. And he says, Lee, does this house have ghosts? Now I'm a day away from closing. Like, this is the biggest check of my life. I'm like, oh, I gotta think quickly. Because I knew if I said, I don't know. He was done. He was out of there. He was jetting. He was not closing on the home. So I looked him dead in the eye and I said, Jose, this house is 100% ghost free. And he closed. So, I mean, anyway, so got a check, made 30, 35,000. So now I'm rolling that money into another deal. Now I made my second mistake and my third mistake on this deal. So bought the house, decided to move back to Tampa, Florida. And I decided to re remotely rehab. And for anyone starting out, don't try to remotely rehab. Don't be in one state on your first deal trying to rehab at a house in another state. I always tell people, I'll tell you the same thing. You want to start out in your backyard, learn the skill set, learn how to build up a power team on your on your on your own in your own backyard, and then you can rubber stamp that in other in other markets. So mistake number one was buying in buying and then trying to rehab it out of state. And then mistake number two is I had a friend rehab the house. So that rehab instead of even being two or three months turned into a six or nine month project. And at this point, the California market was starting to decline. So we're into 2005. And what most people don't realize, they recognize the global collapses, 2007 to maybe 2010, 2011, and, and the real collapse in 2008. California was showing, showing signs of slowing down in 2005. So I skated out the back door, thank goodness, made maybe 10, 12, 15 grand. I mean, it wasn't a huge profit for a $220,000 sale, had to reduce the price several times. I was really, really happy to sell that. 
So 2005, back in Tampa, Florida, and I want to purposely uh, rehab houses again. So what did I do? Sought out a mentor. I asked everybody I knew, and that's one thing I did right. I asked a ton of questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. If you don't know something, one of the smartest people in the room is the person that asks questions. One of the dumbest people in the room is the person that sits there, doesn't know the answer, doesn't know what they're doing, and doesn't ask any questions. So I always try to be really receptive to people when they ask me questions, because that's exactly what I did starting out. I try not to be condescending or look down or say that's a dumb question, because it's really not. If you don't know, you don't know. So I asked a ton of questions, and I said, where do I find real estate deals? So one of my friend's fathers became one of my other mentors, and he said, buy at the courthouse steps. I said, what's the courthouse steps? He said, that's where they foreclose on property. What's a foreclosed property? That's where the bank takes back the home. They foreclose through the county. I said, where is this auction? He said, down at the courthouse, gave me the address. So I show up at the auction, I walk in, it's like a bunch of used car salesmen and saleswomen. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And everyone's looking at each other, they're nodding, they're smiling, they're winking, and there's, number, there's numbers being sold. I'm waiting for a house or an address or something. No, it's case numbers. So I'm just watching case numbers and people raising their hands and cashiers checks being traded and people winking and nodding, smiling, getting mad and slamming things. And I'm really confused. So what I did, and this is really one of the things I've approached when I approach a new market or something I don't understand, I try to understand the landscape. So I sat at that auction for about two weeks, showed up every day. I think it was two o'clock is when that auction started. And I just watched what was going on. And what did I do? Started asking questions. Said, hey, I'm Lee. And they got to know me. You know, I made sure I showed up in really poor clothes so that they didn't really take me serious. And they were happy to answer my questions, not realizing within one year, Reed, I was the biggest buyer down at that auction. That's awesome. That, yeah. that's, an, that's an incredible story. So you've gone from, you know, uh, Ireland to uh, study back home, coming back to California, then back to Tampa, and then making all these mistakes along the way. Yeah. One question for you, why the hell did you go back to Tampa? What's wrong with California? <laughs> I like California, but it's expensive. It's expensive to live out there. And as someone who was just at, in college at the time, I mean, it hit my wallet at the gas station, hit my wallet with my rent, hit my wallet. Everything's got tax. You, even when you buy a candy bar, like the tax on that candy bar in California is about double what it is here in Tampa, Florida. Everything is taxed. Groceries are expensive. Going to the movies is expensive. Just doing anything out there is expensive. So I found that I didn't feel like I had enough money at the time to really thrive out there. Plus I had a relationship go south, so it made sense to break up and move across the other side of the country. So there was a few things combined there, but California is beautiful. I go out there a lot, I love it. I think it's amazing that Southern California, San Diego, La Jolla, I, man, I love that. Really, really, yeah. that's... You sound like you got exactly the same story as me. I moved out here for a girl. I, we didn't break up, we got married, so... Um, gotcha. but, the, <laughs> but, but, but what I do wanna hit on is some of the really key things that you, and, and I've actually been in your situation where I tried to rehab a house. I had a business partner on the ground, but it still went south. Um, and when, I was, when I moved out to California from New York originally, I was flipping a house in Philadelphia. It's interesting that you mentioned that because it seems like we've gone through similar paths uh, in order to, to, to sort of get those stripes, but uh, definitely something that I learned uh, not to do. Even being a you know structural engineer and managing large jobs from across the world, it's still a little bit different. You've got your own money in the place, but um, very, very interesting. But what I really want to talk to you about today is one of the big things that you're obviously, we just spoke about earlier in the show about you know um, the, the, the hurricane that's coming through, but you're an expert on picking market cycles and, and how to time the markets across the country and where we are. So 
you know, give me your high level analysis right now, sitting here in 2018, October 2018. Where, and I know single family, and I'm in the commercial business, is a little bit different, but overall, I'm in too, by the way. Oh, oh, great. Good, good, good to know. So overall, where do you think we stand in the market cycle today? Well, today is, a, is an interesting day you pick because the market's down 1,400 points in two days. Right. <laughs> yes, so everybody's spooked. Everybody's running for the hills. In fact, I had a lender kill a deal on a commercial deal yesterday because it was loan committee approval day. And the market happened to, to take a dump about 830 wow. points. So I feel like the two are correlated. And what you're looking at is the 10-year tre- treasury bond. You've got, you've got 3.24, 3.25, and that was 2.85 just two months ago. So yeah, we just, we locked on a property ooh, yeah, back in um, April and it we locked it something like 2.65. And we all locked late last year at two point, we ended up getting 4.31 on a, on a, on a fixed seven year note. That was at late last year. We got 4.68 in April this year. And now it's through the roof, right? Yeah. Like it was what, 20 basis points last week or something like that. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah. The run up yeah. was incredible, but so you talk about commercial and single family being different. That That's leveling the playing field. What's happening is rates going up is hitting every market. And so that's hitting cap rates on commercial. It's also hitting cap rates on single family, but, but primarily on single family, it's hitting affordability. And so that's the big thing. Although in commercial, you're looking at cap rate, residential, primarily homeowners are looking at affordability, their monthly payment, and what, what the price of a property equates to a monthly payment. That's that's this entire country. It's, it's really driven on credit. And a, a dollar of cash is considered essentially the same as a dollar of credit. But what's happening is, you know, I use this example now over the last several weeks since I've seen rates go up. I mean, we've got 50% of borrowers or so, depending on what reports you read, with rates of 3.5% or less. Now what's happening is you got an average mortgage rate of right around 5%. So I ran, I ran an analysis a couple months ago in one of my webinars with my students, and I showed them that 300 grand house, if someone could afford a $300,000 house at 3.5%, that same payment now could buy a $250,000 house. That's a great difference. So that's hitting flippers pretty bad. And so what we've done right now is we operate primarily in the median price or below. We really want to be in affordable housing. We want to make sure that an average family in wherever market we're in can afford that house. In Alabama, that might be 150,000. In Tampa, Florida, it might be 250,000. But generally, nationwide, we're sticking in approximately 300,000 or less markets, and we're not messing with jumbo loans and really, you know, half million dollar above luxury properties. There's just a lot of risk at that market point. So, and that's what happens. You know, people, the economy starts shifting. You get to the end of the short-term debt cycle. People close their wallets. They've got to start spending less. Start paying back. The defaults kick in, and that's when. The economy, by the way, is driven by spending. If you want one word that drives an economy or can collapse economy, it's spending or lack thereof. And so I think we're starting to come into, depending on who you ask in real estate, what market you're in, a lot of analysts are saying we're in the ninth inning. So, and so that means that something's going to change. Now, without spooking everybody, because this is where I got a lot of you know, mixed feedback on this, not every market's the same. I'm still in markets where I'm buying houses for 10 and 20 grand. But I'm in overheated markets where I'm running out the back door, like Miami, Florida, or I'm in markets like San Francisco where I don't even bother entering because the price point is so high. It's so unaffordable. It's not of interest to me as a flipper. So, you know, we, we definitely pick our poison. We, we try to look at the market specifically. So there's certain things like the rates, the Fed, the Fed funds rate, you know, you've got the 10-year treasury note. You've got things that you can hang your hat on that 
are happening on a national level that are affecting affordability, cap rates nationally. But then you've also got local things. And this is where we've got to take all of the information as investors. So in your local market, is stuff sitting on the market longer? Are your days on market going up? Is your list price compared to your sold price, is that ratio changing where you're listing things on 200 on an average now, the stuff that's getting sold is getting discounted 10 or 20%. That's some cracks in the armor. Is the supply in your market going up? Not every market's the same. When we buy nationwide, we see everything from declining markets to markets that are still showing, even this year, 5 and 10% appreciation. So that's one thing we look at. We only flip the markets that are going up. We don't flip the markets that are flat or going down. And we analyze it in Texas. There's a lot of markets in Texas right now. They're actually turning the other corner. They're going down. We're, we're jetting out of those markets. And even up north, we get into uh, D.C., uh, Maryland. We're seeing signs there that there's declining markets up there. So we're trying to sell what we got and move out the back door. And we're not doing any more flips in those markets. Because that's one of the things you have in a, in a flip compared to a wholesale deal. you got market risk. Because the longer it takes to rehab, the longer it takes to sell, the more market risk you have. You couple that with rates going up and prices, in some cases, still going up and affordability going down. That's a recipe for disaster. And that's the very thing that buried me in 2007 was rehabbing houses in a downward market. So now we're very selective in our underwriting. And so a couple of key things we do. We, I had a deal in California, actually in Reddings, California. And the, the ARV on it's about 650. We underwrote the resale price at 600. The, the rehab was zero. I underwrote it at 20. So I'm trying to build in a, a tolerance there for risk and a cushion to make sure if I do make a mistake, I'm still making money. So I put a lot of padding both on the rehab on a fully rehabbed house and I put a lot of padding on the resale price and made sure I did it at the lowest end of the comps, especially in you get over three, $400,000. In California, I understand a 600 grand house is not all that in a bag of chips, but for me it is. It's more than, it's about three times what we normally flip so I want to make sure we're definitely making money. So stricter underwriting on our resale price, stricter underwriting on our rehabs. And generally, we don't do big rehabs right now. That's one fundamental thing we're not doing is we're staying away from these projects where you got to get engineered drawings and plans, three months of permitting, six months of construction. So you can basically get a nine-month window just to get the property to market, and which means your hold times could be 12 to 15 months start to finish. To me, that scares me to death to, to start a rehab today and not have it on the market until next, next winter. So we're not doing that. That's, you bring up, look, a lot of incredible points. I, I want to just quickly rewind back to what you talked about, the 10-year T-note and, and the, the affordability. For those laymans out there who don't understand how that affects, you're talking about affordability rates, why do you think, the, do you, have you read any literature on why it jumps, spikes so much yeah. over the last, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it jumped 20 basis points last week. In, well, in just to give you an analysis, you've got investors taking their equity positions, they're getting out of what they consider risky equity positions. So that's why you see in tech stocks taking a dump right now, and they're moving into bonds. So this is a classic move that happens. And so supply and demand is pretty simple, by the way. Economics 101 dictates if there's more demand and all of the things are equal, what happens to price goes up. And so you're seeing people, you're seeing people moving out of equity and that's what's hurting the market. I don't think we've hit the bottom. You know, I just had this conversation with a multi hundred million dollar guy today and he thinks that the market's still got a ways to go. So he thinks we're in free fall right now. Again, we might go up tomorrow, but generally speaking, he thinks people are running for the hills and we could have another thousand, 1500 point haircut or more in the next few it days. 
Is that because the Fed's increased interest rates the other day and that investors bonds look didn't more like that? Investors didn't like that. And you, you see Trump tweeting on this stuff too. At the, at the end of the day, they're, you know, the Feds have multiple faucets. That's what I call them for money. Right. You know, yep. they want to turn on the money supply or turn it off. And right now they're trying to turn off the money supply, but you know, investors feel like they're doing that too quickly right now. And so, I mean, we're talking three hikes this year. Three. But you took, yeah, I know, but that's interesting you bring that up because it's more attractive to then put your place, your money in bonds when the when interest rates go up, right? So what that that means it's more people looking at, okay, well, I can place my money at two or you know, whatever it is, two percent or whatever the, the or I can place my money at uh, a higher risk in a stock. So people must be thinking, well, hang on, I'm going to get my money for, it's going to be more stable in this bond. So I'm going to transfer it all into bonds. So I'm now leaving other, like you said, equity markets Correct. Um, up the gurgler. It's so literally one, it's, 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 it's like a seesaw right now. That, that's what I see happening, especially with the tech stocks that they, they, you know, people feel like that's riskier than in a blue chip stock. And so that's why you're seeing the, the NASDAQ getting their butt kicked over the last few days, more so, more volatile than what's happening you know, on the Dow. And so, I, I mean, I trade, I trade stocks every day. So that's just- is, is, there a, is there a correlation between what's happening with tariffs and all that sort of stuff? Are people, yeah. now, that, now that people are running for the hills, when you say running for the hills, they're really running for safety, right? So they're going to those blue, blue, chop, blue, blue, chop, blue chip stocks rather than the higher risk tech stocks. Is that or correct? Even, or even just a stable bond where they got, in their mind, a guaranteed return and they would right. rather get 3% guaranteed than, than possibly get eight or 10%. Plus if, if people believe the markets are overheated, you want to pull out of equity, you want to wait till things cool down and then, then jump back in again. And so that's me. I mean, I pulled all my money out of the market. I, I'm loaning on you know, things that are more stable, you know, out of my yep. self-directed IRA, for instance. Uh, I've taken all my money out of the market on, on that. Yep. Because I just so you, say overheated. No, I, I completely. I think it's these, these are all really good points because it, you know, we're we're in this real estate world, right? But you've got to understand the stock yes. world, otherwise yes. you're not going. It's going to you're going to get caught with your pants down. And sure. that, I get a lot of people on this show that talk about real estate, real estate, real estate. So like, well, hang on, you've got to look at the other side of the coin and why what's happening with the stock market. And you know, I, I was speaking to someone the other day and. And he had claimed he saw some some statistic that every single down cycle was as a result of the Fed's raising money. But the Fed's raise money in order to quell spending, right? And once the once the Fed's raise it too quickly, uh, if they raise it too quickly, the market's not ready, and you start going into a bit of a, as you say, a free fall, right? Correct. And the recession is defined, I think, as two quarters in a, like in a row. Uh, right. Fine. So we'll see how we'll see how it all shakes out. But I think it was very aggressive. Uh, what they're doing with their raising of their rates and uh, the market is reacting poorly. And, the, and for you, you made a really good point. People try to separate real estate and stock market. The stock market is a leading indicator of what's going on in the economy because that yeah. is people spending and trading real dollars in large amounts every single day. In, in so, real time, right? It's not like, it's, it's, it's not like I'm going to get an ARV of this thing in, in a yeah, future exactly. prediction of, of 400,000 bucks in six months or three months time. It's like, no, this is it's what it's worth today. Yeah, and, which to, is, yeah, which is yeah, and to, to further that point, spring of 2008, when the Dow hit 6,000 and change, that's when real estate hit the bottom also too. So, I mean, the two are correlated. You know, there was a global meltdown. So I absolutely want to see what's going on the front line, the front line being the stock market. And then I want to see what's going on with the feds. And then I want to pare it down to my local market and see what's going on also. But I try to build an intelligent approach to real estate now instead of just freaking out. You know, people say, oh, I've got an inverse yield curve. I'm like, okay, great. Well, what's going on in your market? You know, people want to point to one thing. 
But I consider all of these things building a picture of what's going on and making sure I'm adjusting my strategy and navigating through that. And that kind of leads me to another point. One thing I've realized when I look back over the last 13, 14 years, there's two things in real estate that are constant. There's always money in real estate, but it's about being on the right side of the trade. And that's right. what I, I have realized. Because Okay, you bring up a very good point there. So how do you how do as real estate investors in this current market free quote 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 free fall if we get another we get another quarter in free fall? How, what side of that trade are you trying to be on? Well, for, for buying holes, I want to be in a stable asset class. Multifamily is good. Student housing is good. They're more kind of recession-proof models in my mind as far as buy and hold. And just to further that point, I've sold all my single-family rentals. I'm about 90% divested. I had over 300 single-family rentals. I'm down to about 20. I'm running out the back door because I think I can buy my exact same house I'm selling for 150000 that I bought for 30 back for 50 in 24 to 36 months. So why wouldn't I sell it and just buy a bank? So that did you and if you know just to repeat that, you said that you're buying stuff and selling it. So you're buying it 30K, selling it for 150 and you with the with the thought that you're gonna be able to buy it back for 50K in 36 months' time or 24 months' time, right? Correct. So I bought these assets during the run-up, you know, five, six, seven years ago. I'm selling them now because I believe that's it was the right side of the trade to assemble these big rental portfolios several years ago, but it's the right side of the trade to sell them when the prices are high. In case mm -hmm. in point, one of the indicators for me in a local market, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure out if you got all the landlords in your area dumping all of their portfolios, that should tell you something. A lot of times- Landlords and single family, right? Sorry, just, right. To, just to be clear. Yes, right. yep. mm -hmm. That should tell you what's going on in your local single family market. Because why would someone who has a portfolio of 100 homes sell them? It's because they think that the price is reaching a peak price. And they think that they, it's a good time to exit out of that asset. And that's happening in droves here in Tampa, Florida. You know, prices are high. I mean, you've got entry-level houses that are in C, C minus, in some cases, neighborhoods going for over $150,000. And my only point of reference, Reed, is that I bought the same house five, six, seven years ago for twenty dollars or $30,000 or $40,000. That's my point of reference. So it's kind of like, you know, you get into the Dow at 6000 in 2008. Now it's at 26000 and 25,000, I guess, today, because it took about a thousand point haircut. You're like, well, that's four times what I get in at. So a lot of people are saying, you know what, that's, that's a pretty good return, a 400% return. I'm, I'm jetting out the back door. I'm done. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. And so, you know, you've got some emotion, you've got some logic here, but I think that looking at the indicators in your market is very, very smart. I think ignoring national indicators as well as local indicators, both of those are road to nowhere because you need to build a, a full picture of what's going on with your strategy, with your market, what's going on around you. Now, you bring up some very, very good points about, just to quickly summarize, the, the, some of the things we just talked about was the, the indication of why, you know, why the Fed is re increasing rates because they're trying to reduce spending and how that affects equity and where people are looking to now place safe dollars. And that's causing uh, freak out in the market and certain, you're saying, tech, uh, tech stocks, uh, which is potentially leading to the you know, not correction, but, but the, the, the loss over the last couple of days. But how that then you view that in your local market and how you made a very good point here of landlords dumping house, housing, houses and this is single family houses because they might have picked those things up at, uh, as you said, thirty or $40,000 five or six years ago. Right. And we're seeing the same thing, Reed, with multifamily. They're yep. not that different. We're seeing people that bought, I, I remember I passed on a deal, it's it probably five, six years ago in Ohio, it was $3,000 a door. 
Wow. 300 units for 900 grand. I'm kicking myself because I'm looking at what people are doing assembling multifamily right now. I'm looking at C grade product, C minus, you know, being sold at 50,000 a door. My, my, my jaw is dropping. I'm looking at right. And that's a good price, right? <laughs> absolutely. And so we're seeing a lot of aggregators that, and I was just at a multifamily conference and they're talking, they're doing the same thing I'm doing with my single family homes in markets that they're not super in love with. They, 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 they can't wrap their brains around buying at a 20 cap and now buying today at an eight cap. They, they just- you know, Or lower, or lower. Yeah. You know, because they, I, we're picking up stuff at five and a half, five, six, 6% cap rates, you know? Now this is in, these are class B plus assets. So it's a little bit different, but it's, you know, we're getting average rents of eleven to $1,200 for one bedroom, but that's a, diff it's a whole different strategy. But I understand what you're trying from a high level point of view. If you're in that sort of low affordable housing type of space, whether it be single family or, or, or multis, you better, you know, I, I just, I know how hot the market is because I'm a multifamily investor right. and, and we're, you know, we're still raising a ton of money. There's a lot of equity out there who wants sure. to be placed at a, at a preferred return. But when cash flows that, that don't start coming, you're going to stop paying that preferred return, right? So it's, it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, so, so what is some advice that you can give to the, to the listeners of the show about, you know, how do they look at both stock markets and a holistic point of view and then their local market? Because you've, you've sort of alluded to that, um, that you, it's, it's not just the one thing to look at. You're sort of putting all, all into a pot and you're boiling it up and you're looking into the tea leaves and thinking, okay, what do I need to do? Sure. Well, I think on a national level, affordability is going down because rates are going up. That's something we can hang our hat on in single family. We can say, if rates are going up, that's going to drive down affordability. Because people aren't what they're not doing is they're not uh, making more money to compensate for that. So the rates are out, outpacing what's happening with people's salary. So that, that by nature, with all of the things being equal, is, is driving affordability down. So and, and affordability co coexists with spending, right? So if, if things, if you, the aspects, if, yes, if, if, if you, if you just, I'm trying to break it down for these people when you go through your points. So when you interest rate on your credit card, for example, if it goes up, which is tied to the stock market, uh, it's because the floating rate, you're not going to spend as much if you're going to start getting hit at 18 and 20% credit cards sure. compared to, you know, a 12 or 13%, right? Right. Well, and that's what happens is that at the beginning of the short-term debt cycle, you know, with, which kind of is coinciding. I think all of this is coinciding with what's happened to real estate prices, what's happening with the Fed rate, what's happening with about being at the end of that short-term debt cycle. So at the beginning of the short-term debt cycle, people are spending more than they make because they're, they're borrowing credit. So by nature, they make $1, but they're spending $2 because they've got credit. But at some point, you know, they've got to pay that money back, which means you're spending less than what you're making because you've got to pay your money back. And that's where the defaults kick in. And that's, I think we're starting to hit that, that place. Just to give you some real data, year on year, the list pendants filed in Florida are up double. List, list, list what, sorry? Can you repeat? The list pendants, which is the foreclosures, the filing oh, right. foreclosures, it's double. It's doubled year on year. That's since, the, since 2008? Since, no, since 2017. So from oh, wow. last year to this year, it's doubled. So huh, already? Things are, yep, things are heating up in the background. Absolutely. Yep. This, this is the real story that the media is not printing. And if you're looking right. at things like this in your market, you can see the train wreck coming before it even comes. And so- and It's interesting you say that because Florida is such an affordable market. So for not to be able to afford in Florida, <laughs> You know, you tell me one hundred fifty thousand dollars houses. I'm thinking, wow, that's bloody cheap. Well, where, where do I sign up? Two fifty is kind of the medium price here in Tampa. Down, you get down to Miami, you've got an average house in an average neighborhood going for three fifty, four hundred thousand dollars. So, right. 
I mean, the average person can't afford that house. They don't have, they don't have combined income, how combined household income to really support that. So this is where I, I can see definitely some real cracks in the armor. You got a condos, for instance, in Miami, you got a huge oversupply there. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's, there's cranes in every corner. There's thousands of units, tens of thousands of units going up. There's no buyers for these things. And so, you know, I can already see that there's an oversupply situation, particularly with condos in Miami. So I just try to really look at common sense things. I try not to keep it a level where it's, it, the average person can't understand it. If you have your eyes open, you're networking, you're watching the news, you've just got to put, like you, I think you use that analysis of putting everything in a pot and look at the tea leaves, you know I mean? That's, that's what it is though. It's, it's, it's a little bit simpler than that. You just lay out these facts and try to make a determination. You know, my approach to business is not to pigeonhole myself. It's, okay, what's the market doing? Where's the opportunity? And how can I capitalize on that? So I'm an opportunity chaser in real estate. I'm not a rehabber. I'm not a wholesaler. I chase opportunities. And so if the opportunity changes, I change my strategy. And I've changed my strategy a dozen times over the last dozen years. And that's what makes you a good real, uh, entrepreneur because you're not afraid to change. So with that being said, what are you doing right now? You said you're, you're liquidating all your single family sure. uh, that's number uh, one. buy and holds. Number yeah. one. What else are you doing? Uh, reducing debt. Our debt's reducing down about 50%. So our short-term debt, our hard money, borrowing is down. We're also reducing leverage. So where we may have been leveraged at 75% or more, now we're, we're trying to achieve leverage under 70%. Now with the, the tens of millions of dollars I borrow, swinging the needle and dropping leverage five or 10% equates to millions of dollars of my own money I have to put back into these deals. But I'm doing that so I'm not in a situation where I'm over leveraged. And that's what happens. Yeah, and that's on a flipping, a flipping basis? Correct. Correct. So yeah. I'm trying to drive down leverage to make sure if I got to run out the back door and liquidate stuff, I can do that and still have money. So we're also getting out of hard rehabs and big rehabs. So that's another thing we're doing. We're only doing paint, carpet. We're in and out in a couple of weeks where we got the property back on the market. We're also uh, doing lower price points and we're also stepping up wholesaling. So that's the specific things I'm doing to answer your question really specifically. I think I'll go back down to the list again in case we, we missed that. Yeah, no, go again. So liquidating uh, my rental portfolio. Yep. Yep. Reducing debt. Mm -hmm. Reducing leverage. Yep. Reducing rehabs to just easy rehabs. Doing lower price points and doing more wholesaling. More wholesaling. Six, there's sort of six things there that you're doing. And, and, and you're, you're hearing this across a lot of, even in the multifamily game, you know, getting uh, fixed rate long term debt. At you know, and you're seeing the Fed, um, not the Fed, Freddie and Fannie leveraging on typically multifamily to stabilize Class B asset. You know, you're not really getting any more than sixty-five to seventy percent leverage right. on the on the entrance. You have to already bring your own capex dollars in, and you bring in your own operating account in. You know, there's just very similar things that you're not. It's not a flip, but it's still you're doing. You're raising more equity in the front end to give you a cushion in the event that something goes wrong. Exactly. Exactly. It, 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 that's and that because that was really going to be my next question is how do you see this flipping over into the commercial space and what are you doing because you said you're on commercial. What advice can you give to those fellows out there in that commercial sphere? Well, this is probably where I sound doomsday. So I had a development project that now we're, we put on the market. We've got to a certain point to develop it. We're not going to develop it. We're just selling the land. Yep. You, you took it through entitlements and flipping the flipping the paper. Yeah. Well, actually, we got that. We bought the land. We we got it platted, but we're not going to develop it any further. We realize we we think that the market risk is too great to be be done with this project in twenty four to thirty six months and be bringing it to market. So we decided just to sell it and take the cash. Interesting. So you sell it to another developer who will go ahead with it, right? 
Sure. Let him take the market risk. No, 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 you bring up a really good point because uh, for those people out there who don't know what that is, it's like you take a plot of land to the city or to wherever you get an entitlement process going, you might get it rezoned and then right. you take it. That, that's taking a lot of risk off the table for the next bloke, but yes. you haven't actually put, put any shovels in the ground, right. um, which is like, you know, because then you've got to go with construction debt and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of people are also land banking right now, which is sitting on, you know, really nice lots in certain downtown urban areas, knowing that they're not going to, you know, we won't be able to develop because it's bloody expensive. I know here in California, the cost of commercial, you know, construction right now. Uh, a developer buddy, uh, developer buddy of mine's developing, you know, ninety-four units, and he's probably in it for three hundred eighty or three hundred ninety thousand dollars a door. You know, yeah, that's that, that, that's full rent. That's not even condos, and it won't be condo. And, and so you, it's you bring up a really interesting point. One of the biggest problems we have where there's a shortage of houses in this country is affordable housing. Why? If a builder can build a class C product and only get this price point, but can build the exact same, would basically have the same cost and sell it at a class B price. All the buildings going towards class A and class B because the construction costs are so high, it, they, it doesn't justify building class C multifamily. Doesn't build, it doesn't justify building an affordable house. If an affordable no, it doesn't. House, but you also, you bring up another really good point is, um, which what I'm seeing a little bit under the hood is a lot of trades um, particularly your class C contractors, and I'm talking commercial GC people, they're losing, um, I've seen a couple of concrete companies go BK. I've seen a couple of drywall companies go in BK. Uh, this, and these were the bottom of the barrel boot slamming type of guys on jobs that probably were not, were too sophisticated for them. You know, So uh, I'm seeing that it, it's, it's hurting in California here. Uh, and then the Bay Area is even 20% more. You know, I couldn't even imagine what's going on in, in Miami where you're talking about all that. There's just, there's also that um, where the market is, that graph and if people, you know, that graph of where the affordability of land and then the cost of building it, right. like they, sort of, they sort of peak at the same time and then things are going to start to come down because right now nothing's penciling from a ground up construction point of view. It really isn't. And, yeah, and it's, I'm, it's, I'm it's, seeing it's deals get killed. I'm seeing deals where the loans were approved, the bank's ready to go and the developer's thrown in the towel because yep. they reanalyzed their budget and realized their budget's 20, 30% higher. You talked about tariffs at the beginning of this uh, podcast. And you know, to be honest with you, tariffs have raised raw material prices. And so even the fear, even the threat of that has raised raw material prices. We're seeing electrical bids come in at you know, 15, 20% more because the price- I just, bought in, um, I, just, I just bought in about a oh, quarter of a million, uh, $300,000 worth of just flooring and um, lights and plumbing fixtures for my, my multifamily deals down in Texas. And my supplier was like, yeah, you're going to get hit. And uh, if you don't get your order in soon before the Chinese New Year, like it's, uh, it's going crazy. Another buddy of mine just got, he's got his stuff held up at the port because of the supposed tariffs on, uh, what did he bring in? Countertops, that's right. Yep. And he... He, he, the, cap, the tariff hasn't been sorted, but the port won't release it until you pay it, and he may get a refund until the tariffs have sorted themselves out. So, so you just that was that was the thing was already on the ship, and it's hit the port, and because the tariff had been discussed while the four weeks was on the ship, by the time it hits port, you bought it from China at X amount of prices. Now landed here, it's worth thirty percent or twenty percent more, and then yeah. that's just it's it's. You know, my, my opinion, it's not great for, we're going to be forced into a recession whether we like it or not because of this sort of, like guys can't now build and all of a sudden, literally overnight, things are just starting to cost 20 or 30% more if you're in the ground up construction game and you're trying to be, you know, creative and go to China and not have to, you know, sure. buy, buy locally. And, and, and yeah. I agree. And to your point, if you're doing a $60,000 rehab, 
you could be going 20 grand over budget. If we're doing a $20,000 paint and carpet, we might spend 22, 23. So that's another reason why we're, ta we're taking that construction risk as well as the market risk off the table. If it's a hard rehab or an old house, someone else can do it. If it's 1990 or newer, that's for me. So I don't rehab old houses anymore. I, I wholesale all my old houses and I rehab all my new houses. Awesome stuff, man. Well, dude, I could talk to you for hours and I know you've got to, it's late over where you are. And so um, I want to get into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Sure. No problem. What's your daily habit to keep on track towards your goals? My daily habit is being super organized. I use my calendar. I use my email very specifically and uh, I make, use my to-do list. So those are three tools I use to stay organized. They're all different tools. Uh, my email is cleared out to zero every single evening. I have a zero inbox. My calendar is for anything that's time and place specific, like, like this podcast. And then my to-do list is for tasks. And I even have a two-week rollout for my critical list. I have a non-critical list that I look at once a week. And those three tools are how I never miss anything and I get the right things done first. So that, that's been a big key to my success. My chief operating officer does the same thing my general manager does and most of my staff does stuff pretty similar to the way i do it because that's how we stay organized as a company that's awesome that's awesome no or being super organized being to-do list i think that's really incredible uh do you use any particular tools any journaling or any specific software i use google sheets i, I keep google it really sheets, easy yep. yeah google cool. sheets because some some of these softwares it takes so long to input a task that you just don't use it. So I make everything easy where I can copy and paste it from the email, put it into my to-do list, I'm moving on. Uh, Google actually has a couple of new, new tools. They've got some new uh, to-do lists. If you look at the little menu over to the right and play around with it, I forget exactly what it's called right now, but, but Google does have some new note features. And actually you can yes. drag your email into your to-do list and it actually embeds the exact email in your to-do list. So there's some really, really cool tools. Google Suite, I'm a huge fan, I like it. Yep. You know, I like anything that's affordable. I don't like anything that's hard to use. I don't like anything that costs a lot of money because not everybody can use it. So exactly. I'm Love looking it. for cheap, useful tools that I can use every single day. And Google is ahead of the curve. In my opinion, they've got the best stuff out there for that, that kind Love of it. All right, mate. Second question. Who's the most influential person in your career to date? My father and one of my mentors who likes to remain unnamed, uh, JR. Got it. Got it. Uh, now this is, I just maybe just asked this question, but we'll quickly rehash it again. What is the number one tool in your real estate business, whether it be software related or hardware related? That's a good question. I think that one of the primary tools I use 20 times a day is my calculator. So I developed a buy calculator so I can analyze a rehab versus a wholesale versus a double close. So I can analyze buying a deal, whether it's a buy or no buy, not because I like it or I think it's a deal, I just put the numbers in and I can run the, in 60 seconds, I can tell you what price I'm buying that asset at. That's a good tool. That's been a good tool for me. And then you develop that yourself, right? Yeah. It's a simple Excel formulas, but all I do is plug in my exit price first, plug in my capex, and I plug in my whole period and I, that I can, it, it tells me how much I can pay for that. Love it. Uh, this might, it's a longer winded question uh, or answer for this question, but what has been the biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from that failure? Being over leveraged, actually it's the complete opposite of the list we went over. The, the six things that I just went over, I did all of those things wrong. So I gave, I think we talked about, what was the first thing I- I'm, So you're reducing debt and then you said reducing leverage. I, I increased debt, I was over leveraged, 
I was rehabbing hard rehabs in a downward market. I mean, all of the things you shouldn't do, that was exactly what I was doing. So instead of switching to a wholesale model, I'm full steam because I had my head down rehabbing. I'm painting houses till 10, 11, 12 o'clock at night. I'm not bothering to look at the market just collapsing around me. I'm not looking at the days on market going up. So literally the complete opposite of that list I just gave you what you should be doing right now. I was doing the exact opposite of that. I love it. Well, mate, I want to thank you for being on the show. But the final question is, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to get involved with what you do and just pick your brain because I think we've had a very, very in-depth conversation. I'm going to summarize it in 30 seconds here, but where can they reach you? At www.flipyourincome.com. That's the educational platform where I teach. I teach everyone from newbies to mid-level operators that are trying to scale up their business. And we've separated those groups, by the way. So we don't have newbies in the mid-level group. We don't have mid-level people in the newbie group. Because who wants to know about a contract when you've already done 50 deals? You want to know how do I go from 50 deals to 500 deals? So I've, I've overlooked everything that we teach. And I personally teach that upper level education to a three-day course. I love it. The results are incredible. We're, we just have people growing together. And for me, whether it's this podcast or my educational platform or my business, it's about creating value. And creating value gives you the tools to make more money. Do working smarter, not harder. That's actually the goal. If you're in my office right now, Reed, you'd see this little mouse with a helmet on and a mousetrap, and it just says, work smarter, not harder. And that's, yeah. that's the key. It's not about being lazy and doing nothing and sitting on a beach. It's not about just working you know, and grinding 18 hours a day. It's about you know, directing your efforts, making sure you're effective and working smarter, not harder. But yeah, www.flipyourincome.com. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, I want to thank you so much for dropping by. You could provide us with some cracking advice. And just the, the top probably three things I took away from today um, was that, you know, try to understand your surroundings and be, you know, be observant. And, and in the beginning, you were talking about how you just went to the, the courtyards, the courthouse steps, I should say, and you're just observing and asking questions. Don't be, uh, uh, don't be scared to ask questions. I think that was the second one. And the third one you sort of talked about was that in your businesses, you've, you've evolved five or six times and you're, you're willing and nimble enough to evolve, which is really important as an entrepreneur because um, if you get stuck in the ways in which you think or the ways in which you think you're going to do business, you are going to be washed out the back as this tidal wave of entrepreneurial you know, stuff comes around. But I also would quickly want to just, again, rehash those top uh, six things that you're doing to reduce risk and to be prepared in today's market cycle that we are coming to the ninth innings. Um, reducing uh, your, your, your debt, reducing leverage. Uh, you're also liquidating uh, houses that you don't think you're going to be able to survive uh, a downturn. You also want to um, do really light rehabs and you're um, wholesaling a lot more. And then on the market side, you, you'd mentioned about observing, if you're seeing landlords getting rid of product it's in your local market, it's yeah. a very, very good way of, 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 of indicator that something's going wrong, sure. right? Yeah. Did, did I did I leave anything out? <laughs> no, that that was that was pretty good. Yeah, it's 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 you're, you're essentially all of what I'm saying is I'm trying to take risk off the table. That's what right. I'm doing. You know, I'm trying right. to be more conservative in my approach to real estate by taking risk off the table in all the ways you just mentioned. Awesome stuff. Well, Lee, well, thank you so much for dropping by. Enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll catch up soon. Great, thank you. 
Well, there you have it. Now, make sure you check out all the notes from today's show up on my website at reedgoosens.com where Lee's contact information will be and a summary of today's cracking you know, episode because we went into some really, really deep stuff about how the, the stock market impairs, um, uh, sort of dictates the real estate market and how you need to ha- handle that risk and why one thing in spending and affordability leads to high interest rates and all that sort of stuff and how that can affect you as a real estate investor. I want to thank you again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on the show. We're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe. Remember, happy investing.